Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of March, 2021, and this is episode 198. On today's Dispatches podcast, Canadian historian Professor Christopher Bell, Professor of History at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, talks about his recent book on Churchill and the Dardanelles, which examines the role of Winston Churchill in the ill-fated Gallipoli campaign. This book is published by Oxford University Press. Professor Bell spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Canada. Chris, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, thank you, Tom. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I am a historian, also an academic. Uh, my work has focused on military history broadly, uh, with a particular focus on the Royal Navy. Uh, I also have a long-standing interest in Winston Churchill, and uh, this particular book uh, combines my interest in naval history and Churchill. Now, I, my interest in military history is something I, I, I think I've always had, uh, been always particularly interested in British and European military history uh, pretty much for as long as I can remember. And as I began to study it at university in greater and greater depth, uh, what I found myself doing was was gravitating more and more towards the 20th century, and specifically uh, towards the two world wars. I think in large part because uh, these were conflicts uh, that were just on such an immense scale that had such such tremendous drama uh, wrapped up in them. And ultimately, uh, conflicts that just had such a profound impact on on the world that uh, that I lived in. So why did you write a book about Churchill and the Dardanelles campaign? Well, uh, my previous book, entitled Churchill and Sea Power, was uh, an examination of Churchill's development as a naval strategist over the course of his very long career, from about 1911 up until the 1950s. And that book was very much dominated by the Second World War. Uh, I was only able to uh, devote uh, a single chapter to the First World War, and in that, the Dardanelles only managed to get about 15 pages. And it was really an immense amount of work for me trying to figure this episode out. It was probably the most difficult episode of Churchill's career uh, when it came to trying to really get to the root of it and to understand uh, the different controversies and really to get a handle on what what actually happened. So I spent a lot of time on it uh, before I really felt confident that I, I fully sort of grasped it in all of its complexity. And then I was very frustrated that most of that knowledge and understanding of the Dardanelles. Uh, I simply didn't have space to fit it into the book that I was writing. So my treatment of the Dardanelles campaign in that book was really entirely from the perspective of Churchill's long-term development as a naval strategist. And I had to leave out a lot about the, the, the different personalities that were involved in the campaign, the politics behind the scenes. I was only able to sketch out in the in the you know in the most uh, barest details the actual operations uh, of the Dardanelles campaign. And then really what was most frustrating was that I, I simply didn't really have a chance to delve into how the failure of the Dardanelles campaign uh, affected Churchill's political career, and beyond that, how it affected his reputation in the long term. Also, you know, I, I couldn't address things like how popular views towards the uh, the Dardanelles and Gallipoli campaign had shifted over the course of the last century, and it really seemed to me that these were all essential parts of the story. So when I finished with that book, I decided that it was a, a bit of unfinished business that I, I needed to take care 
aware of. I needed to go back and look at the story and tell it again uh, in all of its different aspects, starting with a, a careful re-examination of what had actually happened, but then looking also at the aftermath of the campaign, how it affected Churchill's career, how Churchill himself had played a very important role over the course of 50 or so years when it came to shaping popular perceptions of the campaign, you know, uh, an effort that uh, had huge repercussions uh, for Churchill himself and, and still has an important uh, bearing on how the Dardanelles campaign is, is viewed today. There is very much a tendency now to look back at the Dardanelles and to view it through a very specifically Churchillian lens. And whether you like or dislike Churchill, uh, that does tend to color how people remember the Dardanelles campaign itself. So before we get into the detail of actually what happened during the campaign and the subsequent um, legacy, what exactly was Churchill's role in government in early 1915? Well, uh, Churchill had become the first Lord of the Admiralty, which is the political head of the Royal Navy, in 1911. So when the war began, uh, he had been in office uh, now uh, as First Lord uh, for nearly four years. And at the time, Churchill was something of a, a rising star. Uh, he was only 40 years old uh, when the war began. And he was someone who was very much in his element in 1914-1915. He was somebody who found war to be very exciting. And more than that, he was one of the few politicians in the uh, liberal government of the time who really had an understanding of modern war and modern strategy. And of course, he had tremendous ability, or sorry, tre tremendous confidence in his own ability. So right from the beginning, Churchill thrust himself right into the inner circle of the British war and the decision-making process right at the highest level. He was one of the two ministers that was in charge of one of the fighting services. And to a large extent, other members of the liberal government were not really comfortable in a military role, uh, were ready to, to listen to him and to defer to him on military or naval matters. So following on from this, what exactly was the purpose of the Dardanelles campaign and why was it so attractive to many military and political leaders at the time? Well, the Dardanelles campaign, the idea behind it began to emerge the early days of January 1915. And what made it attractive was that there was a recognition that uh, was, was definitely uh, taking grip by this time, that the war on the Western Front had settled into a very bloody stalemate. So the British decision makers were, I think, rightly in sense, looking for other places to use British forces in 1915. The British Army was going through a, a process of expansion, and there was a, a genuine reluctance to want to simply send more British troops to fight in France and Flanders. So one of the obvious places to fight uh, that was potentially more advantageous and would take full advantage of uh, British sea power was to fight somewhere in the Middle East uh, against the Ottoman Empire, which had come into the war uh, on Germany's side at the end of October 1914. So this was this seemed to offer a, a really good opportunity uh, to the British government. The Ottoman Empire was a much weaker enemy than Germany, and appeared that this would be a theater in which the British would be able to achieve substantial victory and do so at a much lower cost than they would in the West against Germany. So there was a emerging consensus at the end of uh, 1914 that Britain should try something different. And once attention had shifted to the Ottoman Empire, uh, the focus very quickly became on the Straits of the Dardanelles, which is a narrow watering, waterway uh, about 40 miles long that connects the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. And the Dardanelles Strait are very heavily defended, but this still offered a, a very tempting target uh, for the British, simply because if you could get through that 40 miles of, of, of the strait, there would be nothing to stop a British fleet from sailing directly to uh, the Turkish capital, uh, what was then Constantinople. 
Constantinople, which of course now is Istanbul. So this was a way to potentially strike a very direct blow at the heart of one of Britain's major enemies. Now at the time, the British army had no forces to spare. There were no troops to be put on the ground. But one of the things that the Navy had was a lot of older, basically surplus battleships. Ships that were no good against the Germans in the North Sea because they were simply too old, but still had very powerful guns and could be used uh, to great effect, they thought, uh, against the Ottoman defenses uh, in the Mediterranean. So the idea of the, the Dardanelles offensive initially was to use the, the heavy guns of the British battleship in order to neutralize the Turkish defense, to knock out the Turkish forts with their heavy guns that, that were lining both sides of the strait. And then the, the hope was that if you could knock out the gun, you could send in minesweepers that would be able to sweep the mines. And it was the mines that were the main obstacle to uh, a naval force being able to pass through the strait. So if you could do that, you could then basically sail an allied fleet uh, virtually into the middle of Constantinople itself. And the capital city would be at the, the, the mercy, in theory, of the, the guns of the British fleet. So there was a, a tremendous confidence on the part of most British decision makers that if you could pull this off, you would be able to knock the Ottoman Empire out of the war fleet, that the Turk would panic, there would be a revolution, the people would rise up against government and demand that they make peace with the Allies. And ultimately, there was uh, a widespread expectation that this would probably lead ultimately to the collapse and the partition of the Ottoman Empire itself. So it appeared that there were tremendous benefits to be gained from a relatively simple, direct naval attack. And the hope was that once the British fleet sailed through, that the Balkan state, uh, which had a long history of, of conflict with the Ottoman Empire, that, that Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, for example, would rush to join in the spoil and get their share of the Ottoman Empire. So there was a lot of talk in London about a new Balkan coalition, you know, a million troops from these Balkan states now coming into this new coalition under British leadership that would be able to finish off the Ottoman Empire and then would be able to turn against Austria and take a lot of the pressure off Russia and the Eastern Front. So it was a very tempting, a very uh, rewarding package in that if you could pull this off, there would be tremendous benefits that would have a major impact on the course of the war. And of course, Churchill saw the benefits of this. He loved the idea. And one of the things that Churchill liked about it was that the naval staff was willing to endorse. They had some reservation about it, but they agreed that if things went well, this, this could work. So Churchill and his advisors at the Admiral uh, were very much on the same page here, that as an experiment, that this was something worth worth attempting. And if it worked, you could knock the Ottomans out of the war, you could have this new Balkan coalition, you could put pressure on Austria, everything would have a tremendous benefits, it would open up a supply route through the Black Sea to Russia. And the best part, from Churchill's perspective, and this was an important part of how he sold it uh, to his political colleagues, the best part was that the risk seemed to be very low. The battleships that the British would be using were largely obsolete when it came to the North Sea and the war against Germany. So there was a sense that these were ships that were going to be scrapped soon anyway. So from Churchill's perspective, you might as well let them go out fighting. And if you lost them, it didn't matter because you didn't need them. They were surplus requirements. It was an ideal strategy in that it also didn't require troops because none were available. Uh, but best of all, there was an exit strategy in place at the outset. And one of the most appealing aspects of the, uh, the pitch for the Dardanelles was that if the experiment didn't work, if you sent ships into the Dardanelles straight and it turned out that 
they couldn't get through and they couldn't clear the mind. Uh, Churchill said, then you simply call it off. You pretend that the whole thing had been a feint, a diversion. You sail the ships out and there's no harm done. Uh, you don't have to suffer any significant losses and there was really no downside. So in the early days of 1915, the British government was very easily persuaded that this was something worth trying. A tremendous potential payoff, minimal risk, and it was regarded as a viable alternative strategy to simply feeding more British troops into the Western Front. However, as we know, things didn't go completely to plan. Could you tell us about what actually happened? Yes, well, the, the naval attack actually got off to a really good start. Uh, the British battleships were able to knock out the four forts at the entrance of the strait, entrance to the strait of Dardanelles. Uh, and this went very smoothly. Uh, the British guns outranged the Turkish guns, so the, the British ships were able to knock out these forts. They never took any hits in return. And by the first week of March, there was a huge wave of optimism that this was going to work, that the Turks were going to collapse, and that the whole thing was going to go very, very smooth. And then things, I won't say they started to go wrong, but they started to stall. Once the uh, British and French ship began to move into the Straits of Dardanelles, that's when the problems began to develop. And the first problem, and the minesweepers that were there, were completely ineffective. Uh, these were simply not up to the job. These were converted fishing trawlers that had been taken out of the North Sea. They were slow, unarmored vessels that were incredibly vulnerable to fire from the Turkish guns on the sides of the strait. So these minesweepers uh, came under very heavy fire. The minute they began to enter the straits, most of the time they couldn't even get as far as the minefields before they had to turn around and return. They tried to sweep the mines at night, uh, and the Turks simply uh, brought out massive uh, searchlights and used those direct heavy fire on the minesweepers as well. So after a couple of weeks, the British began to realize that they simply were not able to sweep the mine. The other problem they had was that it was very difficult to knock out the Turkish guns that were in the strait. It was, you know, one of the things they realized very quickly was that it wasn't enough to be able to hit the Turkish fort, uh, you know, at, at a great distance of maybe, t you know, sort of 10 or so miles. They had to be able to hit the individual guns, make sure that they could actually knock them out. And that proved to be incredibly hard to do. So knocking out the Turkish defenses was very difficult. As long as you couldn't knock out the gun, couldn't sweep the mines, and if you couldn't sweep the mines, you couldn't move the battleships in far enough to be able to get really close to the guns to have a better chance of knocking them out. And beyond that, the Turks also had, besides the, the really heavy guns in the fort, they had a lot of uh, field guns, howitzers that were concealed along the sides of the strait that the British were also unable to knock out. Uh, they didn't know where these guns were most of the time. They weren't able to use their naval guns to hit them because the naval guns had a very flat trajectory and the Turks were able to hide them behind hills and it was it was almost impossible to hit them. So the British warships were covering, coming under constant fire. The minesweepers weren't able to sweep the mines and after a couple of weeks, by about the middle of March, the uh, commander of the British fleet, or sorry, the uh, combined British-French fleet, realized that they were simply not making any progress. British warships weren't suffering much damage, but they also weren't doing much to eliminate the enemy's defense. So they had reached the point where the offensive had effectively stalled. And because there had been no losses to the, to the, the warships at this point, no one was thinking about calling it off. And they decided on the 18th of March that they would make one big push, that instead of sending maybe two or three battleships at a time in to, to bombard the Turkish defense, they would send the entire fleet of 18 or so British-French capital ships. And the hope was that there would be so much firepower there that this would be able to completely overwhelm Turkish fences, that this would suppress the fire that would come on the minesweeper. And then the, the minesweepers would be able to go in and they would finally be able to start clearing out some of these mines. So this was the, the plan on the 18th of March.
approach. And this is where things do dramatically start to, to fall apart uh, for the offensive. The warships uh, were taking for hours very, very heavy fire from the Turk gun. And some of the ships were starting to be seriously damaged. But the, everything took a very sharp turn for the worse. Uh, around the middle of the afternoon, when uh, the fleet began to maneuver through a minefield that they hadn't detected, uh, a minefield that the Turks had secretly put into place uh, a few nights before. And the Allied commanders had no idea that this, this minefield was there. So in the space of just a few hours, you have four or five of these uh, battleships hitting mine. And by the end of the afternoon, uh, you have three capital ships that have been sunk, three more capital ships that have been very badly damaged and had taken away for extensive repairs and were going to be out of commission for months. So by the end of the 18th of March, the Allied commander had lost literally one third of his entire fleet in the space of just a few hours. And in return for this, they had not swept uh, any of the, the Turkish mines. They had not, permanent, not permanently knocked out more than one or two of the Turkish guns. And for all intents and purposes, the Turkish defenses were uh, almost completely undamaged. So this was the point where the experiment had clearly failed. You know, this is the point where it was clear, or should have been clear, that the naval defenses were simply too strong. And they should have done what they planned to do all along, which was to call it off and bring it to an end. Now, unfortunately, by this point, there was a general consensus, uh, both amongst Allied leaders on the spot and amongst the British government uh, back in London. There was a consensus that they were too committed, that they had gone too far now, that it would be too great a blow to British prestige if it appeared that they were simply throwing in the towel, giving up, and running away, particularly from, from the autumn. You know, the Turks were considered to be a second-class enemy. So there was worry that they would be humiliated if it looked like they had been beaten by the Turks. So the decision was now taken. Instead of calling off the naval operator, uh, now they were going to escalate the offense, to put more resources in. And of course, this meant the decision was now taken to commit Allied troops. British, French, Australian, New Zealand troops, they were now going to be landed on the Gallipoli Peninsula so that they would be able to do what the warship hadn't been able to do, which was to take out the Turkish defense, to destroy the fort uh, from land, and then to be able to neutralize fences, protecting the minesweepers, or protecting the minefield, so that the minesweepers would be able to get in and clear a path. And then they would resume. The army would clear the path, the navy would then sail through and uh, steam on toward Constantinople. So the campaign fails. What were the casualties in the campaign? Well, the, the naval campaign, the casualties, uh, and this is one of the points that Churchill frequently made uh, later on, that, you know, on a, on a day on the Western Front where the British Army uh, or the Allied Army might be suffering tens of thousands of casualties, the, the naval casualties were probably under a thousand sailors. And most of those had been on one of the single French uh, battleships that had sunk very quick. Uh, the French battleship Bouvet had gone down very quick uh, with uh, over 600 casualties death uh, as a result. So the naval offensive was not particularly costly in terms of life. And Churchill would afterwards argue that this was still a very, uh, if you like, cost-effective uh, employment for British force, that you know the, the battleships themselves were expendable. And with most of the British ships, they didn't sink quick. Uh, they were able to get most of the crew uh, off of them. So the, the number of uh, deaths suffered as a result of the naval defense uh, was really quite light, certainly compared to the casualties that were being suffered on the Western Front uh, and the casualties that would be suffered 
later on uh, in the Gallipoli Peninsula uh, as well. Uh, now, ultimately, the, the Gallipoli campaign is where the casualties do start to add up uh, very rapidly. And um, I, I don't have the exact figures on the top of my head, but uh, the Allied forces, uh, casualties, death, dead and wounded, uh, probably, if memory serves, came to a couple hundred thousand. Uh, Turkish casualties, of course, being uh, very considerably higher than that. So the, the, the campaign fails and there starts a blame game that many sort of political and military leaders seek to reappropriate um, um, responsibility on various people. Now, your book uh, describes two broad narratives that emerge um, as a result of this uh, process, one which sort of blames Churchill and one which Churchill and his um, supporters uh, put forward, which sort of essentially fends Churchill. Could we start by examining what um, what might be called the anti-Churchill narrative um, and how that developed after the campaign? Yes, well, the, the anti-Churchill narrative uh, actually begins to develop uh, before the Dardanelles campaign even begins, oddly enough. Uh, right from the outset of the war, certainly from within the first month or two of the war uh, start, there was a very vicious campaign against Churchill by the conservative press in Britain and by members of the conservative party. Now, Churchill was at this time a liberal. Uh, he had left the conservative party uh, a decade earlier, and the conservatives had never really forgiven him for this. So there was uh, a tremendous amount of animosity from the conservatives towards Churchill. And you see this beginning to manifest itself in a, uh, a violent press campaign against Churchill, uh, particularly uh, with the Morning Post, uh, you know, a, a particular conservative newspaper that uh, the editor of which had a, a real vendetta against Churchill going back for years. And for months, before the Dardanelles campaign even begins, Churchill is the subject of constant criticism from the conservative press. And the, the gist of it is fairly consistent, that Churchill is somebody who is simply incapable of working with his naval advisor, that he believed himself to be a great strategy, he didn't listen to advice. When the admirals tried to speak up, he, he shut them down. He ignored their advice, he overruled them, and then he was sort of a loose cannon who was bound and determined to have his own way. And there is enough truth in this, in that Churchill could be somewhat abrasive and somewhat uh, pushy when it came to dealing with his naval advisor. Uh, There's enough truth to this that it started to get a lot of track, and eventually even some elements of the, the liberal press begins to acknowledge these things might be a problem. And what really does Churchill in is that the first sea lord, the top British admiral, uh, Admiral Jack Fisher, is also feeding into a lot of these rumors behind the scene. He's telling other admirals and other uh, politicians and people uh, who will listen that Churchill doesn't listen. Churchill's overruling him. And by and large, it isn't really true. But Fisher has his own agenda. And there are enough of these falsehoods and half-truths sort of circulating behind the scene that it, it feeds into this rumor. So by the time we get to the Dardanelles fence, there is a widespread uh, public perception that things aren't entirely right at the Admiral. Churchill and his advisors are not working entirely in harmony. So this is one of the problems that Churchill is already starting to struggle with. The fact that he is suffering from a sort of uh, public relations disaster as First Lord of the Admiral. And every failure is being attributed directly to Churchill for meddling. And the admirals are, are pretty much getting a, a free pass in the press. So Churchill is frustrated that whenever something bad happens, he gets late. And if something goes well, he's not getting the credit. Now, beyond this, when we get to the, the beginning of the Dardanelles campaign in 1950, Churchill, as I said earlier, was still a very young politician and still in many ways fairly naive. And he allows himself to become very closely associated, both within the government and in public, with the Dardanelles operation when it gets launched. Churchill's not looking to be able to spread the blame widely if things go wrong. He is allowing himself 
himself to become the face of the Dardanelles campaign. So that if it does go wrong, there's really no chance that he's not going to be the one to take the blame for it. So this is where this this anti-Churchill narrative begins to take root very early on. And by about May of 1915, when it's starting to look like the Dardanelles and then the Gallipoli offensives are starting to perhaps go badly, there is a clear sense amongst the British public that Churchill is probably the cause of it. Now, the reality is that, that there's a lot of blame to go around. I mean, Churchill certainly plays a, a, a central part in all of it. But the admirals who are advising Churchill go into it knowing what could go wrong. And Churchill doesn't have to overrule. Uh, they are willing to go into the campaign on the basis of it being an experiment that they can call off if it doesn't go well. The politicians in the War Council, uh, people like Henry Asquith, the Prime Minister, and Lord Kitchener, the Secretary of State for War, they are well aware of the dangers and the risks. They have been given a, a pretty blunt appraisal by Churchill of what could go wrong. So there is a lot of blame. And many of the things that do go wrong are the result of bad staff work at the Admiralty or mistakes that are made by the, the admirals on the spot. But what matters most uh, from a political perspective in 1950 is that this narrative of Churchill as the reckless and irresponsible tyrant at the Admiralty who believes he's this great strategist who shuts down the Admiral, overrules the expert. Uh, you know, the idea that he's deceived his political colleagues about the risk and that he launched the operation entirely on his own initiative and that, you know, this, this campaign was one that was bound, doomed to fail. Uh, this narrative is already right there waiting to be launched the moment Churchill is, is driven out of the government in May 1915. And uh, there is a change of government that takes place uh, in May 15. And as part of the Conservatives coming into a coalition government, they demand that Churchill be forced from the Admiral. So in public, it looks like Churchill is being made to bear the responsibility for what has gone wrong at the Dardanelles. And other members of the government who had been involved in launching the campaign, uh, they remain in the government. So Churchill looks like he has left office in disgrace. And it simply gets worse for Churchill from there. This narrative that begins to, to build up over the next year or so really becomes very firmly entrenched in the popular mind. This idea of Churchill, the loose cannon. Churchill who forces this on his advisors, who overrules the admirals, and who somehow manipulates the government into launching an operation that is fundamentally flawed, that never has any chance eating whatsoever. So how does Churchill counter this narrative that's been put forward? What does he say um, to defend himself? Well, Churchill begins uh, very early on trying to refute his critics uh, by producing documents and whatever he can to try to show that, that it's not act, that you know, Churchill has worked relatively well with his advisors, that he is not blamed for a number of the things that have gone wrong in Britain's naval war. But of course, it's a war, and he's not allowed to simply make his case in public. He has to keep a lot of the details of what's going on behind the scenes secret. So it's not until he resigns from the government in 1915 that he can begin trying to make the case that really none of this was his fault. And he begins simply by trying to counter the the the, the main point that his critics had started, that Churchill ignored his advice, didn't listen to the admirals, and he pushed his own strategy, even when he was told that they were going to fail. So in 1915, Churchill is starting out rather modestly, simply saying that the admirals were behind this, that his colleagues in the government, that Kitchener and Asquith and Lloyd George were just as much responsible for this operation as he was. In other words, he simply tries to spread the blame as widely as possible in hopes that this will take a lot of the focus off himself. And that doesn't work. Uh, over the next few years, more and more, the narrative becomes that Churchill was to blame and that he bears pretty much the sole responsibility. So it's not until 
though the war is over, that Churchill is begin or is able to really begin trying to address the bigger question of his role in the Dardanelles, and he strikes uh, a very important uh, blow on his own behalf when he writes his wartime memoir. Uh, they were published starting in 1923 as The World Christ, and in the second volume of The World Christ, Churchill begins put forward uh, a very new and, and much more ambitious counter narrative of what happened with the Dardanelles. And one of the things that you see is that he is still very eager to show that he had support from the app and that he had the rest of the political leadership on board. But Churchill now begins to shift from saying that, you know, that this was not just my fault. Everybody shares a part of this lane. Churchill now begins to put together a very persuasive and very uh, elaborate counter narrative in which, in fact, Churchill says he has nothing to be sorry for, that the Dardanelles campaign was not doomed to fail from the outset, that in fact, it was a brilliant idea. It was a bold, dynamic alternative to this, this sort of slaughter on the Western Front, and that he did the right thing. He found another way to use British power in a different theater of war, where there were potentially great, great benefits to be achieved. And Churchill goes into the details of the operation, and the explanation that he now gives for failure is one in which the fault was on the part of the, the commanders on the spot, that the British admirals in command of the fleet, and later the British generals who, who launched their offensive on the Gallipoli Peninsula, that they had actually come very close success, and that there were a number of key points in the campaign at which the Allied forces were on the verge of victory, but the generals and the admirals had pulled back. They had lost their nerve. They didn't have the ambition or the, the drive and determination to see things through to a successful conclusion. And beyond that, that they were not fully backed up by the government back in London, that the government continued to starve the theatre of resource, that they didn't send enough ship, they didn't send enough troop, and that generals like Ian Hamilton at Gallipoli uh, were asked to do an almost impossible task with inadequate resource. So Churchill, uh, in particular, was very quick to seize upon some evidence that began to emerge after the war, that the Turkish guns in the, the, the fort uh, protecting the strait, that these guns were on the verge of being out of ammunition. And this leads to this, this uh, counterfactual argument that Churchill made, is that if the fleet had just resumed its offensive on the 19th of March, that the Turks would have been out of ammunition, and they would have been able, the, the Allies would have been able to sweep the mines, and that they would have been through the straits in just a, through, uh, just a few hours. So Churchill weaves all of this together into a very persuasive patch that it had come within inches of success, that the idea was brilliant, but the execution had been badly lacked, and that the blame was in uh, on the shoulders of other individuals. And then Churchill goes on from that to extrapolate that if they had just renewed the naval attack, or if they had just put more resources into the land defense, they could have won the war. They could have knocked Turkey out of the war quickly. They could have opened up supply route Russia. They could have kept Russia fighting. They could have prevented the Russian Revolution. And the war would have been over two, maybe three years sooner, and millions of lives would have been saved. So this is the counter-narrative that Churchill begins to put forward in the early mid 1920 And it starts to get traction. Churchill, of course, is a very persuasive, very effective writer. The, the evidence that he marshals is used very effective. And Churchill gets support uh, from all sorts of different uh, directions. Uh, a number of people who had been involved in the campaign, like um, Admiral uh, Roger Key, for example, says Churchill was absolutely right, that, that if they had just kept the attack going, it would have been a success. Uh, General Sir Ian Hamilton also writes that you know, they came very close to success and that it wasn't Churchill's fault. The people like Keyes and Hamilton and others are backing the Churchill narrative. Churchill's also, as a member of the government in the 1920s, able to influence how the 
the British official histories are written. And by and large, they also take a very pro-Churchillian perspective on this, arguing that, in fact, this, the, the campaign could have succeeded. And Churchill keeps pushing this narrative uh, throughout the 1920s. And by around 1930 or so, what we see is that public perceptions are starting to shift very much in Churchill's favor, in part because some of them are listening to Churchill's argument, but also in part because there has been, by the late 20s, early 30s, uh, a very much a strong backlash against Britain's involvement in the Western Front. So it now becomes almost commonplace for writers like Little Hart, for example, to say that the Western Front was a horrible strategy, that Britain should have never suffered these massive casualties on the Western Front, and that the correct alternative was to use Britain's sea power to strike in other theatres. And people are now starting to look at the, the Gallipoli campaign as an example of what Britain perhaps should have done. And by the mid-1930s, this idea that the Gallipoli campaign was a great missed opportunity is really starting to take firm hold. Now, there's still a lot of people who say, no, it was a disaster, it was never going to succeed, and Churchill was to blame for it. But more and more, you start to see that, that opinion is starting to polarize. And there is a very solid body of opinion that does buy into this Churchillian narrative. And of course, in 1940, the Churchillian narrative is uh, has gained enough ground that it doesn't stand in the way of Churchill becoming prime minister. And after the Second World War is over, Churchill's reputation is as a war leader is so, so great that there's a tendency now for people to look back in the Dardanelles as evidence that Churchill had been a great war leader even back in World War One. that this could have been a great success. And if only Churchill had had the power then that he had in World War II, you know, the whole war might have turned out very different. So Churchill's fame and prestige after 1940 really contribute in a major way to a reevaluation of the Dardanelles campaign in a way that is very much to the benefit of his legacy and to his reputation. And it's not really until probably the 1970s that historians begin to go back and take apart this Churchill Chilean narrative, which has become dominant, and the pendulum starts swinging back toward the Dardanelles as perhaps being a very bad idea, and one for which Churchill perhaps does have a great deal of responsibility. So where where does the truth lie, in your opinion, as a historian? What do you, do you, Was Churchill to blame, or was he not? Well, as usual, there is no simple, clear-cut answer, and I have to admit, I went into this on some level hoping that Churchill, the great war leader of 1940, would be vindicated, that I would be able to go back and and, and discover that all of this had been potentially a great success. And I simply couldn't do that. And the more I looked into it, the more I began to realize that there was no straightforward answer. That the truth was somewhere in the middle. Uh, and that ultimately what I think we can get out of the Dardanelles campaign is that it shows just how incredibly complex this episode was in terms of Churchill's reputation and, and as, as, a, as an operation in the war more broadly. So on the one hand, what I took out of this was that, you know, we see many of the best features of Winston Churchill being demonstrated with the Dardanelles campaign. Churchill was one of the very first people to realize the Western Front had reached a stalemate, and he began early on to look for creative alternatives. So we see here that, you know, Churchill has a very fertile imagination, somebody who can be very bold, creative, not afraid to take risks, who's not afraid to take a dynamic initiative, somebody who has a good, broad grasp of modern war and modern strategy. So, you know, the sort of person that, in many ways, is the right sort of driving force that you want behind your war effort. But at the same time, what we also see is side by side 
coincide with this. We also have a Churchill who is still, in many ways, relatively young. He's politically, I think, very naive still. And he is very impulsive. He's impetuous. He does have a tendency to downplay advice that he doesn't like here. And he does have a tendency to overlook or to, to dismiss objections that are going to stand in the way of what of him getting what he wants. So the, the negative side of Churchill is that he does very much have a tendency to get himself carried away. And if there's nobody there to sort of hold him back when he is getting a little too impetuous, this is where we start to see Churchill having the ability or the tendency to get himself and and those around him into difficult of pushing strategies and initiative that maybe aren't entirely sound. And as he becomes more and more committed to them, being more reckless comes to being able to sort of bulldoze through the opposition in order to get what he wants. So these two Churchill, uh, two aspects of Churchill's character are, are very much sort of two sides of the same point. And in 1940, there are a lot of people who are very worried that you're going to get the worst of Churchill without necessarily getting the best of Churchill, that you need good, sound people around Churchill to rein him in, hold him back when his bold, creative impulses start to go down the wrong path. But one of the things that uh, I, I, I do think comes out of this fairly clearly is that the Churchill of 1940 really has learned a lot from the Dardanelles. He is much less naive. He is much more willing to listen to advice that he doesn't want here. He's certainly much more aware of the fact that if his advisors aren't supporting him completely, that politically he is the one who is going to suffer the consequence if things go very, very badly. And as a result, Churchill is much more willing to listen to advice that he doesn't want here. He is much more willing to work effectively with a team of advisors. And by and large, you know, I think in World War II, we see that a lot of the negative aspects of Churchill's leadership are kept under control. So we do, I think, see a situation in which, you know, the Dardanelles highlights, you know, the best and the worst Churchill. In 1915, uh, I do think that Churchill's initial instincts were right to look for somewhere else to use British power to strike a blow other than the Western Front. I think that the way he, he initially conceived the operation as a low-risk, high-payoff operation was generally quite sound. Uh, when you look at the way Churchill pitched this to his colleagues, it would have been, I think, very difficult to, to say no to it. I think where Churchill goes wrong, ultimately, is in losing sight of his exit strategy. Churchill goes into this as an experiment, and everybody really goes into this as an experiment. It doesn't work, you call it off, and cut your losses very quickly. And again, this, this goes right to the core of Churchill's character. Churchill is not one to simply call things off. If things start to go badly, Churchill's instincts are to double down, fight harder, to fight with increased determination. So on the 18th of March, when the operation probably, I think, should have been called off, Churchill wants to go on, wants to keep fighting, he wants to escalate the campaign, and this is where I think Churchill's impulses begin to lead to what does become a disaster, one that, that could and ultimately should have been avoided. But ultimately, Churchill is not alone in that. There are a lot of mistakes made at all of uh, the Admiralty, by other politicians. Uh, Churchill, without a doubt, is the driving force behind much of but ultimately, this was a collective responsibility. And to understand, I think, what goes wrong with the Dardanelles and later with Gallipoli, you need to understand this as a very complex operation, which Churchill is just one actor among many. So finally, Christopher, where can people learn more about your research? Well, uh, my book, uh, Churchill and the Dardanelles, has now just uh, recently been uh, released in a paperback edition. I'm assuming and hoping that it is available uh, in better bookshops everywhere. It is, of course, available uh, for order online through uh, the Amazon uh, website. It is also available directly from Oxford University Press. Anyone interested in uh, learning a little bit more about uh, some of my other work is encouraged to take a look at uh, my website, uh, ChristopherMBell.ca, where I have uh, 
uh, quite a number of uh, my articles have been posted, excerpts from a number of my other books, and uh, a blog that's uh, unfortunately a little bit out of date at the moment. But uh, there is uh, a fair bit of material there that does uh, allow your listeners to uh, get a good sense of uh, what it is I'm doing and some of the other work that I've done. Christopher, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much, Sean. It's been a pleasure. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...